0: Of a regional war lingers with more countries now being involved in the ongoing Israel Hamas war. In the latest, US and UK forces carried out retaliatory strikes in Yemen on Houthi linked targets on Friday, marking the first military intervention since the war started. Strong reactions and warnings have followed these strikes. US and British forces targeted nearly 30 sites with more than 150 munitions in Yemen. This in response to the attacks on Red Sea shipping carried out by the Iran-backed militants, which they say is a response to the war in Gaza. The Houthis, who have vowed a fierce retaliation to the strikes on Yemen, say that at least five people died and six injured in the attack. US President Joe Biden says he does not believe any civilian has died in the strikes he described the Iran backed group as a terrorist organization and warned to retaliate further if Houthis continue and I'm quoting here outrageous behavior Biden says that his administration has delivered a message to Iran and that Iran knows not to do anything the US President says he does not want a war with Iran which is seen as a huge risk ahead of presidential polls in the United States of America. On the other hand, Iran has strongly condemned the attack and has warned that it will fuel insecurity and instability in the region. Iran's foreign ministry said that the attacks are a clear violation of Yemen's sovereignty and territorial integrity, and a breach of international laws as well. Meanwhile, the United Nations Security Council on Friday discussed the war in Gaza and the strikes on Yemen. The United Nations Secretary-General reiterated that attacks against international shipping in the Red Sea area are not acceptable, while Russia strongly condemned the strikes has said that they mounted to an irresponsible adventure and risk across the entire West Asia. China also shared concerns over a regional spillover with the strikes. Now, the attack in Yemen has triggered huge demonstrations. Thousands gathered in Sana'a in the Houthi-controlled Yemeni capital. The demonstrators were seen bearing Palestinian flags, placards of the Houthi's official slogan and picture of the supreme leader. These are the scenes from the Yemeni city Hodeida. thousands of people, some carrying rifles gathered for a demonstration there. In Tehran, several students and residents burned flags as they demonstrated outside the British Embassy.
1: David Penn here. Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast, Episode 86: Nazis and Gangsters. It's the 15th of January. It's early in the morning. Uh, this is going to post up Tuesday night, the 16th at 7:30 p.m. I hope you're well. You can see I'm not in a suit today. That's because it's about minus 25 degrees with the wind chill, and a suit does not go with appropriate winter weather gear. One must be prepared for this kind of weather, and of course. Uh, we're not. I mean, I get a kick out of this. I see everybody coming into the office. I mean, Some people are not even wearing winter jackets because they have so much confidence in their ability to get from point A to point B. If in between point A and point B, they get stuck in this kind of weather, you freeze to death. So I, in my vehicle, had my winter boots. I had my winter jacket. I had my winter wet ready gear, ready for anything. That's, you know, the way I am. And you know, around my house, I have to say I've got people that love me that think I've gone, you know, crazy and that I'm uh, overly focused on negative things. Because they don't see bombs, you know, falling here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, so there must not be a war. But as you can see from those scenes from the Middle East, uh, you know, that's pretty darn threatening. That's pretty threatening. They're talking about us here, the great Satan and the little Satan Israel. And these people are getting ready to get down. And we're going to talk about that today because I think it's very important. Uh, There doesn't have to be bombs dropping in your hometown for us to be at war. And uh, we are, you know, as we the people, we have our military forces uh, engaged in the Red Sea in what's called Operation Prosperity Guardian. And there's been, I think, three rounds of attacks in Yemen by our forces there. And President Biden was uh, confident that no civilians had been killed. And, whoa, that's some pretty precision bombing right there. And, uh, you know, that's if they, you know, how are you going to drop all those bombs and not kill some people accidentally? Why do we even talk like this? It's a little silly, isn't it? Like war is not war. You know, I have a friend of mine, Dave K., we talk about Star Trek, the original one, back in the 60s. There's a great episode where two cultures are at war, two planets are at war, but there's no bombs dropped. It's all computer games, and when one or the other side has a successful attack, the citizens automatically report to be liquidated consensually. as part of a game, war game. This is no longer a war game. These are real bombs, and these are real people dying. And the risk and the threat grows every day. Um, You know what I'm going to do here before we we start? You know, one of the things I want to do is try to uh, develop my sense of humor because uh, I had a terrible weekend. And um, when I say terrible, it was terrible on a lot of different perspectives. Um. I fell short of my own mark. I had problems uh, from the beginning of the weekend until late last night. And uh, one of the beautiful things about uh, waking up, and it's a new day, it's a new day of creation. Everything starts new. Every day, everything starts new. That's one of the things we can thank God for is a fresh start every day. So I'm going to start the day with a joke. It's probably not going to be a very good joke, and I, I don't think I'm going to do a very good job. But please let me practice, because humor and levity are an important balance to the seriousness of the times within which we live. And it's appropriate for me because, as you know, I have a rather uh, broad experience with religious matters, and this one kind of caught my eyes. It's going around the Internet right now. A middle-aged Jewish man goes to his rabbi and says, Rabbi, please help me. Please, I have a son. He's about 30 years old. He's been a good Jew for 30 years, and then bam, suddenly he's a Christian. And the rabbi says, Funny, you should say that. I have the same problem with my son. He's been a Jew for many years. I raised him in the faith, and all of a sudden he's a Christian. What's going on? Let's go see a senior rabbi, Rabbi Rabinowitz. So they go to see Rabbi Rabinowitz, and they say, Both of our sons say they're Christians now. What are we going to do? And Rabbi Rabinowitz says, funny you should say that. I have a son too, and he's also been Jewish all these years, and suddenly, bam, he's Christian too. Let's go see the chief rabbi, Rabbi Spiegel. So the three of them go to see Rabbi Spiegel, the original father and the two rabbis. And they say, Rabbi Spiegel, all of our sons are growing around saying they're Christians. What are we going to do? They're complaining. And Rabbi Spiegel says, funny you should say that. My son, 30 years, he's a Jew, and then bam, he's a Christian too. The rabbi gets really serious. The only thing we can do is take this straight to God. So the rabbi kneels, gets very serious, and he prays, oh, dear God, master and king of all worlds, Our sons have been good Jews for 30 years, and now they're going around saying they're Christians. And a voice booms down from the heavens. Honey, you should say that. (laughs) I got to practice, but it it really is a good start to what I want to bring forth here. Let us not preclude miracles. You know, the anti-Semitism and the people that are so quick to judge. If we need a miracle, or let's say we want a miracle to help humankind in this moment of darkness, and we're praying and we have, you know, some of us have an eschatological worldview. We see that Christ is going to return to the earth. Who is he going to come and re- appear to? Christ, the non-believer, the Darwinist, the faithless, the Satanist? Who is going to be able to see God? Something for us to think about while we're throwing the faithful under the bus. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light in the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank You for making me an American. Blessed are You, God and King of all worlds. Thank You for making me free. Blessed are You, God and King of all worlds. Thank You for healing the blind. Blessed are You, God and King of all worlds. Thank You for feeding the people. Blessed are You, God and King of all worlds. Thank You for releasing the bound. Blessed are You, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your only son to die on the cross that I might be saved. Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Who is gracious and ever willing to forgive? These are certainly the times that try men's souls. And uh, when I fall short, boy, I don't feel good about it. Uh, But I'm noticing that um, God has mercy on me because He knows that I'm trying. I don't think the expectation is is that I'm going to immediately go from point A to point B and be healed. Of my faith and the truth will set me free, but I still have to do the work of becoming a loving person. And I, you know, I fall short of that, and I, uh, I struggle with it. And I think that's really right now for me and my walk is what God wants. He wants me to struggle with it, and I am struggling with it. And I think again, if we all struggle with our shortcomings and we try to bring forth our faith in our lives and to put down the sin in our lives. For each one of us knows where we fall short. We know what our thing is. It could be laziness. It could be gluttony, lust, anger. It could be a combination of them. Whatever it is, I'm engaging in trying to push that negative energy back into the hole from where it came without destroying my own energy see that's that's really the interesting part of it it's like a cancer you know you can get surgery but it doesn't mean it gets all of the cells and you're destroying part of your own body if you excise all the cancer you can end up losing your ability to live because you destroy yourself it's a little bit it's a little bit of a physical mirror of this energy game I cannot destroy my own essence, my own energy, as I extricate myself from my addiction to sin. I have to do it with a great deal of self-love and patience and try to bring myself up out of the hole and put the part that's not self down in the hole and then seal that thing so it doesn't come up again. And my theory is, if everybody did this, if everybody, instead of identifying all these people that are bad, that are terrible, that are this, that are that, because I'm in social media. Boy, what a blame game that is. You know, if we took that energy and we internalized it and work within ourselves, I think we would really do a lot to turn this country around. I'm looking at all these people on X, for example, and I'm not here to show for Trump. I'm just not. Uh, you know, maybe the time will come. I'll start to make endorsements, make comments, but my 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 critical issue now is we have a movement that's being fragmented. It's being fragmented on the right by the Nick Fuentes and the Stu Peters types because they're so focused on anti-Semitism. It allows the left to identify the American populist movement as an anti-Semitic, racist abomination, and this has been used before to dis, to you know to derail the. American populist movements the last time was in the 1930s when was that on the lead up to World War II so history repeats itself we don't have to we don't have to even talk about what's going on currently we can just study what happened previously for insight to what's happening today and on the right we've got you know all these candidates and of course it's it it is a competition of ideas But these people are down in the mud so far slinging mud on each other. It's not really a competition of ideas. I I watch these people say, how can any Christian vote for Donald Trump? Or he's, you know, a terrible husband and a terrible father and a liar, and they're just running this guy down. And I think to myself, wow, you must be without sin to cast stones like that. And it's not just one guy. It's a lot of people. And a lot of them are on the payroll to do it, which really pisses me off. So today is Monday. We're going to come back on Thursday and talk about what happened in Iowa. Tonight is the caucus. And the caucus system is very important. We have caucuses here in Minnesota on February 27th. And I want to urge everyone to get out to caucus and to tell all of your friends and neighbors, bring them with you to caucus because this is how we self-govern in a caucus state. Caucus is very important. We're going to talk more about that as we get closer to February 27th. We need to self-govern, and we need to be concerned, I feel, and I say we, I feel, that what I am interested in is the ideas that these candidates promote. All of them, every one of them falls short of religious and spiritual perfection, every one of them. I don't know what you know, Vivek Ramaswamy's thing is, but he's got something. Could be arrogance. I don't know. Hard not to be arrogant when you're under 40 and a billionaire. You must think you're pretty smart, Vivek, and you probably are, but that's a trap. I mean, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, every one of them has got something going on that we don't know about that they're struggling with. And then you follow the money. Where's the money coming from? Well, we're going to talk about that this week, too. Because, boy, you know, this presumption that you need tens of millions of dollars to win in a political contest, that's a scam, too, isn't it? we got to give our money. Boy, you know, that's a great thing. I guess we have to have toilet paper, and we got to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on politics, right? I'm going to stick with the toilet paper. I'm not so sure about the money. Something we'll be working on this week. We started off with this um, attack on Yemen. Uh, It's extraordinarily serious. Uh, Our officials in our government, you know, they like to, I'm talking about in the Biden administration, they like to make anonymous comments to the press. And there was a lot of them over the weekend. Uh, U.S. officials are warning that President Biden's decisions could lead to a major regional war. Anonymous U.S. officials told the Huffington Post that if Israel provokes a full-blown war in southern Lebanon, the consequences could be catastrophic. Quote, every scenario shows this would escalate into something terrible, whether in terms of counterterrorism or war with Iran. An unnamed official said, well, this is great. They go on. They go on and on interviewing official after official who is, uh, you know, um, saying really crappy things about their boss. It's called leaks. So what's going on here? President Biden's being set up. Number one, Biden's going to get blamed for this war and its outcome. Great. It's his war. He owned it. He started it. It's his deal. Number two, the public is being incentivized to clamor for Biden's disappearance, however that happens. And number three, Iran's going to get destroyed. What we're really doing here, we the people, is we're leading towards, heading towards being seduced into a war with Iran. It's very it's really quite simple. Militarily, Israel has now destroyed Hamas or is in the process of finishing off Hamas as a military threat in southern Israel. The attention's gonna get turned to Hezbollah. Israel's gonna go after Hezbollah. The war there has already started. It's just not on the front page yet. Operation Prosperity Guardian is now degrading the Houthis. In Syria, there's continuous war. You've got the Russians bombing up there, the Americans are bombing up there, and the Turks are bombing up there. It's bomb, 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 you know, bomb away. It's a bomb a minute. So they're wiping out different Iranian uh, linked and Iranian supported groups in Syria. They're really degrading the Iranian capacity to fight a war through proxies. And the Iranians, you know, they're getting backed into a corner. So they're either going to submit or they're going to fight. And uh, they, might even, they might not even be given a chance not to fight the way this is going. It is, you know, January, it's the 15th, it's 2024, and we're, we're marching off towards a war with Iran, something that our political class has wanted for many, many years, many years. It's kind of like the war with Iraq. You know, they fought that first Gulf War, I think it was ninety one, and they didn't finish off Saddam Hussein until 2003. So there was a very long period, an interim period, where the soil was tilled and the seeds were planted to support the toppling of the Ba'athist regime in, in Iraq. And this similar process... Is obviously ongoing now with the Iranians. In the meantime, the North and South Koreans continue to mess with each other. The Koreans have uh, South Koreans have mobilized. They're moving their armored forces to the military to the demilitarized zone. Uh, this is a heavy deal. Uh, it's related. There was an election in Taiwan since I saw you last, and the pro independence party candidate won that election, which stokes further tensions with the Chinese, allegedly. I'll give you a Professor Penn opinion. I don't think anything in Taiwan happens that the mainland does not influence and control. So I'm not going to go all bananas because this guy got elected. The Taiwanese are integrated into the mainland both financially and in terms of intermarriage. And I think that the constant drum beating over there is just another way to get me upset. I don't think that really is center stage today. But this thing in the Middle East is center stage. That's center stage. That is the center stage. And it has implications to when you go shopping down at the big box store because they can't get the boats, the big container ships, through the Red Sea into the Suez Canal, the short route through the canal, which is probably why the British supported putting Israel in the Middle East in the first place, was to get you know a forward firing base to protect that canal and the oil supplies that go through there. Uh, the boats can't get through. The Houthis have interrupted shipping through the Red Sea, so the big container ships are now going all the way around Africa. It's costing about an extra 550,000 barrels of oil a day, and container shipping rates are going through the roof. Through the roof, uh, if you have a direct shipping contract, Asia-U.S. West Coast is now $2,700. Okay, that's great. What about all the people that don't have a direct contract? That'd be all the small businesses, because the people that have the direct relationship with these Steamship companies are the globalist companies, the biggest companies, the internationalist companies. The little people are paying about 5000 bucks to get to the West Coast, and it was probably 1500 or 2000 in December. Quite an increase in a few weeks. And if this continues to remain elevated, uh, we're going to have another round of very brutal inflation going into this uh, election season. So uh, the last... Grown of inflation was caused by a logistics crisis. It settled down because the inflation destroyed demand. So the ocean rates dropped from 20,000 down to 2,000. And now we've got the next crisis, and they're elevating again. Now I will say, in all fairness and in full disclosure, there's something in the Asian market called Chinese New Year's. And in Chinese New Year's or Lunar New Year, the Asian countries shut down for a couple of weeks to celebrate the New Year. No different than what we do here in Christmas and our New Year. So there's not any shipping in February from about the first week of February through the third week of February. February. So right now in January, there's a tremendous competition to see who's going to get their goods on these ships. And the rates may fall after the holiday. They may not. It depends what's going on militarily in this region. War is inflationary. War causes poverty. And those are the economic aspects before we get to the destructive and the human suffering aspects. And then we have our own problems here. we got the southern border dispute. We have a, a preliminary budget deal where the New Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who claimed that they'd never have another continuing resolution, has, of course, cut a deal for a continuing resolution. And when this guy came in, I didn't go on the Professor Penn podcast because I don't believe in fortune telling, particularly with this audience. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I did tell some of my closest confidants, including Mr. Royce White that I didn't think uh, Mike Johnson was as uh, conservative as they were fencing him to be. And he's cut a deal with the Democrats to kick the can down the road. And this is uh, causing a lot of schnurm calls for his removal. And there is a small cohort of um, American citizen uh, representatives who are in the Congress who are clamoring for a shutdown of the government unless the border is protected in exchange for this bill and for funding of the conflicts in the Ukraine and Israel. So we're going to see how that turns out. Uh, We'll see if they dig their heels in Of course, Chuck Schumer and the, you know, the uni parties calling these people extremists. I don't think it's extreme to want a border. You know, I just don't, I just have to say, that's what our movement is about borders turning debt into public asset and ending the endless war. We have a very simple message. It does not seem to me to be extreme to want to have a border so we can have a country. I don't know how that got to be an extremist position. I guess it must have something to do with racism and social equity, that we should bring in 500 million people into the United States of America so they can enjoy the benefits of freedom. Okay, that's great. The problem with that is we have health care for all, we have public education for all. We have social security for all. We have Medicare for all, and it's going to bankrupt we the people. So, if we the people want to have prosperity, we have to have a border. If we the people want to have prosperity, we have to have fiscal responsibility with our budgets. We can't deficit spend 2 trillion dollars every year because that's going to lead to poverty and, you know, caused by inflation. And there's nothing more poverty inducing than an endless war. So we have this very simple message. I think it works for Democrats. I think it works for Republicans, conservatives, liberals, whatever the age group is, whatever you want to identify. You know, if you want to be a communist, you're not going to like this agenda. If you want to have the exact same as everybody else, which means you're going to have nothing. If you want to live in a small apartment, not have a car, Not have ever acquire any personal assets. If that's your political ideology, you're probably not listening to the Professor Penn podcast, but I hope you are, because I want to convince you that having nothing in Asian philosophy is one of the three emptying factors that leads to death. Continuous concern. Well, that's what we're doing. All we got is concern, because every time we open the newspaper, turn the television on, something's going crazy. Continuous concern, having nothing, and disease. The three emptying factors lead to death. Continuous concern. We're always being perturbated by the news. There's no good news. That's why I told a joke. I'll get better at it. Number two, having nothing empties you. Poverty. Number three, disease. Disease is everywhere. Every time we turn on the news, there's another disease. People are sick. They're sick. So, those in Asian philosophy are the three emptying factors. So, what we want is well being. We have a a political philosophy that aims at the well being of the American citizen a border, an asset, and peace. Hey, who's going to get on the other side of that? I want to know who among you is going to come into my comments because I'm going to talk to you. And get on the other side of having a border, spiritual border, physical border, having assets instead of debt, and having peace instead of war? Who will get on the other side of that? And if we get our potential, if we get our candidates speaking very simply and plainly about this, I think we got a winning message, not for Republicans or Democrats, not for left or right, just for the American people. We're staking out a new political philosophy here. And along with all this uh, Sturm and Drong in the Congress about the border, something we're going to follow closely, and you might not have seen this because it's not getting a lot of play. Ellie, did you know that Governor Abbott sent the Texas National Guard to the border to stop a- illegal, a- illegal aliens from coming across that border? Had you heard that? No, because it's not on the mainstream news. But I. I'm very involved in Texas In Texas. The governor, governor Abbott has actually called out the national guard of Texas, put them down at the border and they're actually pushing the feds out of the way. And this is leading to a constitutional crisis. And the Biden administration has already gone to the Supreme court seeking relief against the state protecting its border. Wow. This is getting interesting, isn't it? Well, we don't have to, um, We don't have to talk about current events. We can just go back and look at history and see pretty much everything we need to know to understand the times we live in. in. Elliot, can you play number one under the clip Nazism in America? These are scenes of uh, February 1939 in New York City. Uh, This was the scene outside Madison Square Garden where the German-American Bund, a Nazi-aligned political organization, was going to hold a pro-American rally. If you have video, you see it right there. And here is the very full and packed Madison, Madison Square Garden. And here is the procession of American citizens filling the stage with both symbols of Americana and symbols of the Nazi Party. And here we have American citizens giving the Nazi salute. This is a full and packed stadium. This was the largest Nazi rally in American political history. I'm going to get some uh, images here that are quite stunning. George Washington is the centerpiece. And with the Nazi symbols right there in the hall, I didn't know George Washington was a Nazi. I
0: pledge undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible,
1: with liberty and justice for all. Approaching the stage is the lead speaker, Fritz Julius Kuhn. He was the head of the German-American Bund.
0: I do not come before you tonight as a complete stranger. You all have heard of me
1: through the Jewish controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail.
0: We, with American ideals, demand that our government shall be returned to the
1: American people who founded it If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first,
0: a social just white Gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile controlled labor union free from Jewish Moscow directed domination.
1: Hey, did you know anything about that, Elia? Kind of shocking, isn't it? That's your own country here, right here in the United States of America. Right in Madison Square Garden. Isn't that interesting? How many of us knew that a Nazi party formed in our country in the 1930s? Now, this party was aligned with um, many other uh, pro-American, let's call them, pro-America Nazi-aligned movements. Uh, not the least of which was Father Coughlin. uh, He was not in this group, but they were aligned with Father Coughlin's group. There was a very big effort to call out what they called Jewish Bolshevism in the 1920s and 30s, to limit Jewish immigration, to um, stop people from coming across the borders that the American citizens did not think were uh, good for America, that was not pro-American. They had different values, different languages. Uh, you know, it was, it would, it was a very uh, powerful moment in American history. And, of course, it was uh, wiped away in our memory because when um, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December seventh, December 1941, and then Hitler declared war on the United States, well, these groups, of course, became terrorist groups, and they were disbanded and this dude uh uh Kuhn actually went to um to jail, which is we're going to talk about in a second now this this rally uh probably could not take place today. you know, at that time, the powers that uh ruled New York City, that would be mayor laGuardia there's now people don't even know that there was a mayor LaGuardia. They just landed at LaGuardia Airport, and they don't know that there was a very powerful mayor. And LaGuardia believed in the right of these American citizens to hold these views and to express these views based on the concept of freedom of assembly and free speech. But he knew that this was going to be a you know kind of a dangerous deal, and he brought seventeen hundred uniformed police officers. Uh, to patrol outside Madison Square Garden, and there was about six hundred undercover detectives and non-uniformed officers inside the arena, so they came prepared to take care of anything that was going to happen. Um, outside, there was over a hundred thousand anti-Nazi protesters. Hey, we're talking about you know the potential for violence. You know, we don't have to talk. We just look at the history. Let us. Let our minds look at time a little differently. We're taught that time is a straight line. Time is not a straight line. That is a progressive idea. That time is a straight line and things are always getting better. That's part of progressivism. A more, shall we say, traditional view of time is that everything is happening right now. All we have is the present, and these historical scenes are just as alive today as they were when they actually happened if one but had the ability to project themselves into the scene and make sense of it. And that's what we're trying to do here, because we don't need to talk about what's happening at the border today. We can look back at the history and then try to understand what the differences are to understand why. Immigration might have had um, more validity at one time, at a time when there was no universal health care, when there was no Social Security and Medicare, a la what we have today. And what we have today is a system where, when we have this kind of immigration, and particularly illegal immigration, where people can't take care of themselves, it will bankrupt the public purse. And the public purse would be our purse. We have to pay for it. We the people represent the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. When it comes down to full faith and credit, the U.S. government, that's we the people. It's our money. When they say our, they mean they have the ability to take our money. And that means they can take our energy. That'd make them vampires. So back to to this um, really outstanding event in American history, which is covered up. You know, I didn't know that the Star-Spangled Banner would be sung um, with images of George Washington adorned on the same stage with swastikas. That's some pretty potent imagery. Go back and take a look at it. the The rally began at began at 8 p.m. Uh, the last to speak was the bundesführer himself, Fritz Kuhn, and he pushed this anti-Semitic theme. He, he in the speech he referred to President Roosevelt who was usually popular as President Rosenfield, uh, you know, this is this is uh, quite noteworthy. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, the Nick Fuentes and the Stu Peters types. If they could put on an anti-Semitic rally in Madison Square Garden, I'm sure they would love to do it. But they don't have to do it in Madison Square Garden. We have new venues where people gather. Isn't that interesting? And in the middle of this thing, this uh, fight that happened, uh, this young Jewish man, uh, I think his name was Greenblatt, if I'm not mistaken, went bananas, couldn't handle it, and he jumped up on the stage, and he got, you know, you know when he was interviewed about this in 89, he said, yeah, I didn't go to do anything, I just lost myself. I got so pissed off about them speaking so ill of my religion I had to run up on the stage and make a scene. And they pummeled him. If those cops had jumped up on there to protect him, I don't know if he would have made it because they were giving him some real good thuggery there, weren't they? You can go back and look at it. And this Julius Kuhn, Fritz Julius Kuhn, was born in 1896. He didn't live very long after the war. He died in 1951. He lost his citizenship over this when the war started. Uh, LaGuardia prosecuted him for embezzling funds. It wasn't a lot of money by today's standards, about fifteen grand Back then, that was a lot of money, probably worth a couple hundred thousand bucks, and they busted him on that campaign finance violation. Off to jail he went, and after the war he got deported, and he went over to Europe, and they put him in jail again, and he eventually just died a broken and sad man. He gave his life for his cause. And his cause did not prevail. And he was, uh, you know, battered from pillar to post. Let's take a look at number two. Number two, Elliot, number two. I swear allegiance to Donald Trump. Forget the Constitution. I swear allegiance to Donald Trump. I swear allegiance to America. And I swear allegiance to God and Jesus Christ. That's our pledge. That's our oath. Long live the president. Long live the rightful king of America. We Not a Roman salute, but a regular salute. We salute you, our leader, our hero. God bless you. Pray for our president, our real president. So that's the uh, modern version of uh, Fritz Kuhn, the Nick Fuentes and Stu Peters types. He uh, held back from giving the Hitler salute, but he definitely let the viewers know that it was on his mind. And uh, we have these folks out there today uh, presenting an image of the America First movement of populism in a way that is going to allow the left to um, just discredit this movement the same way they did in the 1930s. All these people that were involved in this last American populist movement, which was critical of the economy that worked against the working man, was critical against the military-industrial complex, was critical against so many of the things that have continued to prevail and to create conditions that are bad for the American citizen. Their movement was destroyed because of anti-Semitism. This time it'll be anti-Semitism and racism unless we the people come together behind this very simple idea of borders, assets, and peace. Borders, assets, and peace. Sounds like a pleasant place to live, doesn't it? a place that has a border, a place where people have prosperity, and a place where there's peaceful harmony. When we understand that the way it is, is a policy that's created by a very small number of people who do not care about Professor Penn and his family, they couldn't care less about me. I'm just protoplasm. I'm just a battery from which they extract energy, just like on The Matrix. I mean, it's such a beautiful image. Go back and watch The Matrix. They called us Copper Tops. And that's what we do. We give all of our energy over and, you know, we run the machine. And then people at the top come up with all these other ideas which don't benefit my family. Well, this was a simpler time back there in the 1930s. We had Nazis, and guess what we had? We had Jewish gangsters. And I mean real gangsters, Jewish gangsters. and. Now the Jewish community, you know, it's relatively a sedate community. Everybody has been here for many generations. Everybody, not everybody, I'm speaking in broad generalizations. Please forgive me. If you're a Jewish boxer, come on into the live chat. I love you because I was a Jewish boxer. But see, I go back to the 50s. I knew these Jewish gangsters. There was real gangsters. Gangsters. Could you please play number three just for Elliot, number three? Here's Myra Lansky, the famous of the famous Jewish gangsters. One of the most notorious Jewish gangsters. Born in the Belarus. He met other future underworld figures when he was living on the Lower East Side. Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano was his palsies. Got his start in bootlegging, because they made liquor illegal. Went into the casino business. And in the 1930s, he was asked to beat down the Nazis, which he did. Tried to go to Israel when they put the pressure on him, when they were breaking up the five families. Lived out his life in Miami. Some newspaper man wrote an article that I have $300 million. Well, I wish I had a million dollars. Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky got the call from a judge, Nathan Perlman. You can go look him up. He was a very famous political figure in New York. He was a judge. He was elected to various posts over his career. And he called Lansky. And he didn't just call Lansky. He called gangsters all over the country. And he asked, you know, Bugsy Siegel was out in Los Angeles. This Nazi movement was uh, countrywide. It was a countrywide movement. They were having meetings all over the place. And, uh, you know, like at this rally at Madison Square Garden, and this Judge Perlman, he was a judge. He knew something about the Jewish underworld. So he called Lansky, and then they got, Other people involved around the country here in Minneapolis was a guy named Berman, Berman, whose family still is here. And um, these Jewish gangsters had organizations, and believe it or not, they gave the Nazis what fur. They'd show up at these meetings, and they'd beat the hell out of these people. Now, they were told by a very prominent rabbi who was in charge of this anti-Nazi movement from a spiritual perspective a guy named Rabbi Stephen Wise, not to kill anybody. So they didn't kill these people, but they went after them with baseball bats and clubs and chains, and they eventually beat these Nazis down so hard that they stopped meeting in public. And, you know, you have to look at, they have to say, wow, there was a Jewish mafia? Did you know there was a Jewish mafia? You did. Elliot knew there was a Jewish mafia. Well, I'm going to tell a story, and I hope it doesn't off-put anybody but my family was in the Jewish Mafia. So we're going to start to make a little preface into the secret society questions that people ask that we're going to try to get to at the end today. Here in Minnesota, we had a group called the Silver Legion or the Silver Shirts, and they were led by a guy named William Dudley Pelly. They were quite prominent here in Minneapolis. And they this uh, judge, Perlman, got in touch with Davy Berman, who are with Kid Can ran the local Jewish mafia here in the Twin Cities, and they went after these people. And I mean, they went after them, and they beat them down hard. It was bloody, it was brutal, and Berman liked his work. These people enjoyed it. You know, these, this was a different crew than we have now here in the, in the uh, Jewish community. The Jewish community now is a, community of uh, intellectuals. They give you a beatdown, it's going to be intellectual. But this group, back in the uh, going back into the 20s and 30s, uh, they were really stone criminals. And uh, here in Minnesota, well, they're all legal now. Let me tell you how it worked, because it worked this way in my family. These people came here in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. What they run into here in Minneapolis? They ran into a Protestant community that was Republican that had its roots in the Know-Nothings and the Whigs, which formed the Republican Party. And I've said many times the Know-Nothings were kind of a Republican Party antifa that was focused on keeping the Catholics and the Jews out of New York through violence, I mean, they were a very violent organization. And that same sentiment functioned here in Minnesota. There was um, the Silver Shirt Group. There was many other groups that were uh, deeply opposed to uh, Jews and Catholics because this was, after all, a Protestant country, right? That's what the Protestants thought. And this goes back, I mean, in the, in the World War I period, we had a parish over in St. Paul, Minnesota, St. Agnes, Catholic and German, was actually bombed. They bombed, and I say they. It was a know-nothing Protestant group, bombed the St. Agnes Church. They bombed it. They blew it up. as a message to Catholics. So we, we, these immigrants came into Minnesota. They were escaping tyranny and anti-Semitism. They didn't come rich. They came really poor. These were poor farming people who were even being denied the right to live off the land uh, in the Ukraine. And in Russia, it was called the pogroms. A pogrom was a riot of the Ukrainians or the Russians, where they would go into a Jewish village and beat the men and rape the women. Sometimes the men got killed. Oftentimes the men were killed uh, around the campfire in the Jewish world. You preferred a good riot with the Russians because they just beat and raped, where the Ukrainians beat, raped and killed. So, in the pantheon of our history, which is in the cells of my body and the cells of my brain, the Ukrainian Nazis were far worse on the Jewish people than the uh, Russian communists or the the Russian hierarchy. And these people had to leave, and they, you know, the ones that stayed, died in the Holocaust. They just did. I mean. Hitler promised one thing to to his people, which was the destruction of uh, European Jewry, which I've played his speech on this podcast, where he said, if war breaks out, the one thing I'm going to promise you is the Jews are going to die. And that he did. He destroyed European Jewry, and the ones that were hip to it, like my grandfather, they got out. By hook or by crook, they figured out, no, I want you to think about, how bad it's going to have to be here in the United States for you and I to decide that we have to uproot our families. Like for me, I mean, you know, I'm not a young guy, and it's so bad here that I have to get out of the United States of America and leave and go to another country for a better and safer life. Think of how bad it has to be. And, of course, the older people didn't go. It was their children that went, leaving the parents and grandparents behind, and those were the people that died in the camps in many cases. They were gassed to death. And when the kids got here, like, let's just take my grandfather for example. He couldn't come to America straight away. First he went to London, where he taught in a school for many years, trying to get up enough money, saved everything he had, went to Canada, was admitted there, and finally got down, because, you know, there's a border between Minnesota and Canada, came across the border and ended up living here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And that happened on both my maternal and paternal side. The My grandparents' families came here to escape. In the case of my uh, maternal side, Latvian anti-Semitism, We called these people Litvox, and on my father's side, my paternal side, they were Ukrainian, and that's why I have so much insight into the uh, history and the events that go on to the Ukraine, because that's where I'm from, and they came here, and what did they find when they got here? No one would hire them. They were forced into ghettos in Minneapolis, it was the north side, which became the ghetto of the black people and for a very long time the blacks and jews were both discriminated against and both forced into that ghetto in the north side of minneapolis and the only reason the jews escaped there was after the holocaust there was this moment of uh you know remorse and that lessened the anti-semitism and you know i was talking to one of my friends and uh there's this argument that really six million jews didn't die You know, I wasn't there. I didn't count them, but there are some very good registries, one at Yad Vashem and and another at the American National Holocaust Museum where oral histories and registries of the dead are maintained just to keep a count in case people want to minimize. And one of the ways it's minimized, which is to say in the same thing, many of the people that left Europe had already left the farm and gone to the big city to escape poverty And when they went to the big city, they were giving up the traditional way of Jewish life, which was we are going to live off the land at subsistence level because money is not important. What's important is faith. What's important is praying to God. What's important is understanding God's will. And these people lived in that fashion. That's why I find the Stu Peters types and the Nick Fuentes types so hilarious because they really don't understand, and maybe a lot of Jewish people don't understand, or should we call them Ginos or anti-Jews. They don't understand what the faith was all about, which was about faith. Nothing else mattered. But the children, they didn't want poverty because they saw industrialization, they saw a better life. They went to the cities, and many times they gave up being Jewish and they became Protestants and so they became Catholics, not because they cared about those religions, but because they wanted to blend in. They wanted a piece of the action. And then when they were killed, because under the uh, Nazi laws, you know, just because you converted did not make you a Protestant, you were still a Jew. So they killed them. So maybe that had something to do with disagreements about numbers. But there was a Holocaust, and the people that survived it, which was like my grandparents, they came here to the Twin Cities, and what they found was discrimination, and the Nazis in the silver shirts. These very people, these very people that they were escaping had set up shop here in the United States, right here in my beloved hometown, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, and they couldn't get jobs. The Jewish doctors could not practice in the hospitals. That's why they formed Jewish hospitals. That's why Jews do business with Jews, because the non-Jews wouldn't do business with them. You know, I'll tell you something about Jewish people. They can do business with non-Jews and make money. Hey, that's great. It's about making money. Once you give over to mammon, these people went all the way. It wasn't the Jews that were trying to stick together. They were forced together to do business because they were not given entree into the general society. And there was poverty. My grandmother grew up on the old west side of St. Paul, which was on a floodplain. It flooded every year. And they had a cow and they had chickens right in town because they had no money. My grandfather went to work when he was six years old. That would be one, two, three, four, five, six. Six years old, he was working to make money because these people were starving. They were poor, 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 poor. They were so poor, in fact, that when I was born in the fifties, my grandmother on my father's side used to put pads of butter in my mouth to fatten me up because she said if I looked skinny, people would think I was poor. If I was fat, people would know I had enough money to eat. These people were screwed up. Okay, leaving your country under the uh, tyranny of murder and rape, and coming to a new country where you can't get a job and you're poor and you're discriminated against, this makes people goofy. They get a lot of anxiety. And then when you find out that everybody stayed behind, died, you end up with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is how I grew up. But going back into this history, because it's interesting, it's, it's no different than what's going on in the uh, black community. Now, when you deny people access to uh, upward mobility, you destroy their families, uh, they have no opportunity. They become criminals because you know they want to make money. They want to survive. They're still competing to be people. And um, these Jewish people became stone criminals. We had a tremendous... Jewish criminal gangster element here in the Twin Cities, of which interestingly, on my mother's side of the family, uh, they were crim- they were gangsters. and uh, people say to me I, w- I was walking in my neighborhood uh, not more than three months ago. it was still warm and I'm walking along and this woman comes running out of her house and she's chasing me. That's you know, well, I got serious then you know, because here comes somebody I don't know chasing me down. So just because she's a woman, I saw her as a threat. And I turned to her, scared her, stayed away. And I I said, look, if you want to say something, go ahead. I'd like to meet you because I try to meet everybody in my neighborhood. She said, me and my sister have a bet. I go, okay, what's the bet? She goes, I bet you're a gangster. I started laughing at her. Of course I'm not a gangster. I'm Professor Penn. But, you know, I guess the background of having family members that were involved in uh jewish gangsterism uh had an effect on me and uh these guys were tough and uh you know i had one uncle he was a great uncle he got into a, a beef with the italian mafia they poured gasoline on him and lit him on fire to kill him son of was tough he didn't die he was uh, my burnt up uncle phil and uh lived to be an old man but he was not pretty to look at cause He'd been, uh, you know, flambeed, and I had other ones I had, but uh, many uncles. They were all involved in in crime. Uh, one of the one, these are my great uncles. I shouldn't call them my uncles my great uncles. They had a casino here in Saint Paul, and they had a whorehouse that they ran. And these guys were criminals. That's what they were, and uh, they wore really fancy suits. And I remember my great uncle Benny. Um, I, I was going out for my first tire convention. I was nineteen. I grew up around these people, and uh, he said, "You're going to Vegas." I go, "Yeah, I'm going to Vegas." He says, "That's great. Go to Caesars, find the bellman, and tell him Uncle B or tell him that Mister B from Minneapolis told you to come see him." I said, w- "Bunny, Benny, you want me to go tell a bellman that uh, Mister B from Minneapolis sent me?" He said, yeah, give it a try, kid, and here's a 50. So I go to Caesars, and I, I find the bellman, and I said, uh, Mr. B from Minneapolis says I should tell you that he sent me, and the bellman says, wait here, kid, and, uh, you know, an hour later, I'm in a $6,000 a night, uh, you know, condominium at Caesars with a grand piano, which I thought was cool because I play piano. So, the, you know, there's going to be people out here in the audience that are going to think Professor Penn. Is a gangster. I'm not a gangster. Let me tell you how this went down with these people. They did not want to be criminals. They were not psychopaths. What they were was American citizens who were denied access to the prosperity that was all around them in America. Kind of like the Italians. Italian Catholics came here and the know-nothings beat them down and wouldn't let them into the society. So they formed their own thing, Cosa Nostra. They had their own thing. They dealt with their own people. They made money with their own people. They had their own system of justice. And they would not let a racist power structure exploit them. Go back and look at the movie The Godfather. That's what the movie's about. They would not be subordinated to people that hated them for reasons that they felt, and I think quite rightly, that were unjust reasons. They were hated because they were Catholics, or they were hated because they were Italians, or they hated because they were Jews, or they were hated because they were blacks. This is the sin of the Protestants. This is the sin of the Protestants. Now, the Catholics have their sins. The Jews have their sins. The Muslims have their sins. All these groups have been corrupted. And I'm going to say this quite directly to Stu Peters and Nick Fuentes. Get your focus off the Jews and look at sinfulness society-wide. And let us all work within ourselves to deal with the inequity that is living within us before we start demonizing groups, because that's not going to get anything done but circumvent and derail the American populist movement that wants what? Borders, prosperity, and peace. Well, that's such a terrible ideology that they're going to... Let's just think about this. Borders, prosperity, and peace. Who is going to be against that? Who's going to be against that is people that don't want prosperity for the people because they want all the money and they don't want peace because there's money in war. So what's going on is is this movement is being fragmented by the very people that are profiting from our poverty and our involvement in war. And these people that are out there saying it's the Jews or it's the Catholics or it's the this or the that, they're just participating in fragmenting a movement of the American people that is seeking what? Well-being for every single American citizen. So we don't want that to happen. So I know there's people in my live chat and in my audience that follow Stu. There's a lot of smart things Stu says. I'm very critical of the American Jewish community, of the anti-Jews, of the Jews that are not Jewish. They don't believe in God. They can't be Jewish if they don't believe in God. All they can do is say they're Jews. That's like a person that wraps themselves in the cloth of faith and says they're a Christian, but they believe in forever wars. They believe in open borders. They believe in debt. Those people suck. They're manipulators. They're hiding who they are. And what's great about this time is that the truth is coming out because the truth is going to set us free. But in a very similar way, in a very similar time, we had Jewish criminals. And what did they do? They were not psychopathically criminal. They were denied access to the equal opportunity that they came to America to receive. So they said, screw you, we're going to cut our own rug here and we're going to beat your asses down. So these Jewish gangsters right here in Minneapolis, I mean, I'm going to tell you, when I was a young man, these, anti, these groups that were you know, young Jewish men that were physically capable still existed. They still existed and they were still beating down anti-Semites in Minneapolis when I came of age in the early 1970s. And why do I know this? Well, it should be obvious why I know this. I wasn't always old. And these people were willing to die to fight for American freedom. And as soon as the pressure came off, as soon as the American people realized that 6 million Jews had died, because of anti-Semitism and the Nazi movement. These Nazis had to go and hide, because, you know, how do you square that circle? And what did these gangsters do? The first thing they did was send their children to medical school and law school so that they could rule the society and they could pull the strings, that they could be the godfathers of the post-war Democrat liberal order. They wanted their children to be able to protect themselves from the anti Semitism and the racism that had, they had found in this country. They came here for a new Jerusalem, and what they got was a slap in the face, a beat down. They found the very ideology that they had run away from had taken root here in America. So they naturally, as soon as they could, went legal. Just like in The Godfather. The Godfather says, Michael, I didn't want this for you. I wanted you to be a senator or a president. He wanted his son to become legal. And that was a big part of The Godfather theme through the three movies. Michael took the family legal. And that's what happened with all these Jewish criminal families. They all went into real estate. They all stopped being criminals. They sent their kids to graduate schools into medical schools and the law schools. And what did these kids think? What was in their memory? What was in their memory was that rally at Madison Square Garden where American populism, where the movement of the American people, righteous indignation against financial manipulation, against immigration, unrestricted immigration, against entertainment that was degrading the morals and values of an essentially religious people. They remembered that the Jewish community was blamed for that. And so they went into school and became part of structures, of political structures, that fought against that ideology. This is a, a dialectic. And there's two ways this is going to turn out, okay? Two ways. You see, the dialectic is being run not by we the people. It's being run by very sophisticated people in universities that know how to achieve outcomes by creating the tension of opposites. This time we're going to reclaim this dialectic. There is no reason at this point in American history where we have agreed as a culture that we do not believe in anti Semitism. We do not believe In racism, we do not believe in homophobia. As a people, under the rules that we agree to follow, called our Constitution, where all men are created equal within the context of a creator. Now, obviously, people are not equal, so let us not let the socialists and the communists take that to make everyone the same. Juxtaposed with the creator, we're all equal. With each other, we have differences, and we have the God-given and unalienable right to pursue our lives, our liberty, and our happiness. That's the rule book we're playing by. Let us understand our rule book. And, you know, when we go downstream several generations, and education is controlled by the leftists, and our synagogues are degraded, and our churches are degraded, and we lose the we lose the real root and meaning of where we come from and why we're doing what we're doing. It's easy to to lose sight of the greatness of the country, to lose sight of that we can come together in a unity about a very simple idea. I want a country, I want to have money, and I want peace. It's very simple, isn't it? Can we sell that to our friends and neighbors, to our children, to our parents when they start going, oh, you know, you guys are racist. You guys are Nazis. No, we're not. We got a couple of Nazis on the fringes that are screwing it up for everybody. And we got to get those people away from this new American sentiment that's forming up that we, the people, have got to demand. And that's why we go to caucus. That's why we go to caucus. So we're going to watch the Iowa caucus tonight and we're going to talk about it on Thursday night and we're going to see how this thing develops. But we, this audience, we have a chance to influence the future of our country and we're going to talk about that in the days and weeks to come to become social media warriors where we go into these chats and we start reminding people What are we about? We're not about anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia. We're about having a country, having prosperity, and having peace. And let anybody argue with that that wants to argue about it. And then we're going to start talking about how to argue with them. We have to push back. We have to push back. Elliot, could you please play number four?
0: From from all parts of the political spectrum, one of the biggest issues that we have when it comes to immigration is the fact that we have an undocumented population. Mm -hmm. Now, you can fix that by trying to build a wall, or you can fix that by trying to document people and create a path to citizenship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um... We'll have that might say, look at these systems, you know, that our shelter system has weight and things like that. But one of the reasons that our public systems experience weight is because people don't have a documented and reliable path to work and sustain themselves. Mm. Just like all of our ancestors did and our our grandparents and great grandparents from all.
1: Well, I'm just gonna tell you my gangster relatives came through Ellis Island. They came here legally. None of them were illegal. None of the Jewish community was illegal. Let me just make this very clear. There was no illegal immigrants in the 20s and 30s. You waited in line, and you came here because you had relatives in the country that applied to bring you in. You came under the rules and laws that our Congress had established for immigration. And if you go back, go to Wikipedia, and just put in immigration laws, and you're going to find out how contentious this has been since the very formation of the country, since the very first day, this has been an argument. There's nothing wrong with arguing about immigration. But if we don't have law and we don't have border, we don't have anything that we can rely upon to live our lives in a predictable and prosperous and peaceful manner. And, you know, when you see someone like this, so beautiful, talking about what she's talking about hey she's got an opinion she's an american citizen she gets to have an opinion about this and so do we and how do we solve this or how do we work it out go to caucus go to your caucus in minnesota it's february 27th somewhere you live go online and in your state there's a political process participate you must participate you don't participate The best organized group of people is going to win. And that is not, that is not the American movement, the movement of the American citizens. We're not organized. We're decades behind. And we're just getting it together right now. And how do we get it together? When you go and get involved and find people of like mind and make your political will felt in the political process. This is not about entertainment. This is not about sitting on the couch. This is not about muttering under your breath. If you really want to have a country with prosperity and peace, you're going to have to get off the couch. Otherwise, when the power shuts off, don't complain. And at that time, there'll be nobody to listen. You'll be kicking yourself in the ass for not getting off the couch previously. I, on the other hand, And people like me who are out there risking it, if the power goes off, at least I'm not going to say to myself, I shoulda, woulda, coulda. No, I'm doing it, and I'm trying to create a structure for all of us to do it. So please, click the like button, subscribe, leave comments, go to my social media, and take the shorts and the clips and send them out to all the people that you know. Let us be warriors together to promote this idea of a beautiful country, one nation under God, with prosperity and peace. That is not a controversial idea. I think it's a winning idea. And people are pushing back all over the world against war and communism and depravity. Let's play number five, please. This is Poland. This is Polish nationalists in the streets protesting against a government that's leading the Polish people to war with the Russians. They don't want war with the Russians. Come on. Who wants to go to war? What You know, if you're young, Elia, how old are you, 23 years old, 22, 24? You want to go to war? Great. You better sort this out, young man. Because you know what? They're going to bring the draft back, and I'm going to lose my producer. You're going to be serving in the U.S. military. That's correct. He's shaking his head. See, it takes time to work with these young people. They come in here super liberal. They think I'm a cretin with like I'm a knuckle dragger. And when they spend enough time listening to Professor Penn, you know the wheels start spinning in their head. Like Tanner. Tanner came in, thought I was a nutball, and he's going to caucus. So I'm going to give a shout out to Tanner because when I saw him last week, he asked me. How do I get involved in the caucus?" and I said, "I'll help you. I will help you as an officer of the Minnesota Republican Party. I'll help you get involved. That's what we do. Peer-to-peer engagement. Talking to people, loving them, listening to them. Not calling them names, not demonizing them. How are we going to get the Jewish and black people off the Democrat plantation when we got people like Alpha News here in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, every time I look at Alpha News, they put up another mugshot of a black criminal. They know what they're doing. They know they're driving a wedge between the black community and the Republican Party because I think they're secretly Democrats because they don't want the black people to come out into the suburbs and they don't want the Protestants to go into the community. They don't want that. They don't want that, what they used to call race mixing. Because they're racists. They're just racists. That's who they are. My opinion, I get an opinion. Let me bookmark this. Nobody at Alpha News told me they were a racist. And I know there's black people that work there. But the effect of their journalism is racist. The outcome is racist. It doesn't bring about healing. It brings about fragmentation. And if we're fragmenting our movement, guess what? When the power goes off, the power goes off. So I was asked by Zyco Bond to do an episode on my secret society involvement. And another uh, listener, G. Dan, wrote in and said, secret societies are always a good education and asked me to talk about it going back to Adam. well, (laughs) We're going to have to work that in over many podcasts, but I know where you're coming from and I, and I texted him back. I thought that was a great insight. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about secret societies. Elliot, could you run number seven, please? That's, num- that's six. Let's go to number seven. We're going to skip Rand Paul today. He came out and said, never, Nicky. We don't even have to go there. It speaks for itself. Number seven, please. Play it again. Play it twice more. One more time. Thank you. Okay, that is the external street face of a secret society. It's a martial arts organization. And if you look at that closely, I wonder how many of you could do that right now. I know I used to be able to do it. Just that good. Probably better. Because I was raised by gangsters. And when we fought, we fought with evil intent. So, you know, it was um, not a kid around deal. Now we're kind of in the kid-around stage. But maybe some of those people are you know, cops or Secret Service, the kind of people that trained with me when I went through this kind of training. And I've said a number of times I've been through three secret societies, and I spent a lot of time in a, in a martial art organization. It's a martial organization. Now, this stuff's gotten watered down since the 60s and 70s. Back there in the day, to do that kind of a thing, you had a reason for doing it. Nobody was there for well-being. Everybody there was a warrior. Everybody was military. So you know it was a different. It was a different. It was a different leadership. Everybody that led those societies at that time were either military or ex-military. So it was a very disciplined, and, and it was with intent. And that's what's called. That scene you saw there is called Wei uh, Wei means exterior. This is into some Asian words. Wei Is daily practice. This is Chinese, wei, external, and gong, like gong fu, kung fu. They call it kung fu. Everybody knows the word kung fu, means daily ritual or daily practice. And people would put, I don't know, maybe three hours a day into that kind of external training, external training. It's like praying, it's like getting up and saying the rosary, or like we start our podcasts off with a prayer. It's not an accident we have a prayer, that we do some things ritualistically on the Professor Penn Podcast, I'm sure people that listen all the time go, geez, why do you keep saying the same prayer over and over again? Because there is something to be gained from continual practice of the same thing. So in terms of this secret society, this Marshall Society, those participants practice the same moves. That's why they're so orchestrated. They've been working on that in class. They go home and train on it. They train on it in small groups. They're continuously training. They're continuously training. That's what Kung Fu means, to daily ritual. And in this case, on that scene was Wei Gong, or Wei Kung Fu, the external. You only see the external. It's a very physical expression of will. What is being trained in that scene? Go back and look at it. The will, the human will. You know, we know a lot about a lot of things, but science can't tell me why I can make this fist and squeeze my hand like this. They're not good enough to do that. They can ape it. They can have a robot do it. But how it works in my brain, they don't have any friggin' idea how that works. There's something called will, human will. And what secret societies do And what secret societies are is a methodology for training the human will. So anything that we give over to, which we don't understand, we don't even know why we're there. We just say, I want to do this. And you go in at the bottom of the pyramid, like the Masons. It's 33 degrees. The people that show up at the Masons and start with level number one, they have no idea where they're heading. They have to train. They have to accomplish certain things that seniors, their seniors, evaluate. And when they have passed level one, they go to level two. You come in with a white belt, and you train for a period of time, and then you take a test. And your senior says, oh, you're good enough for an orange belt. And then you have another set of ideas and skills that you have to master, and you move up. This happens in Judaism. It happens in Catholicism. It happens in Marshall. It happens in the military. It happens in all of the secret societies where people enter young, generally speaking young. They don't even know why they're there. They're drawn there, or they've gotten a tap on the shoulder like Ron DeSantis got at Yale to join the secret society of the Order of Malta that functions at Yale. Got a tap on it. He he could have knocked on the door all day long. He had to be asked. And that's what happened to me. I was asked. Uh, Two times I went in consensually. One time I got a tap on the shoulder. And, you know, you train at these basic levels, and that can take decades. You could spend decades in a secret society, never knowing it was a secret society. And one day you get a tap on the shoulder and you find out, oh, that's what I was doing. And that is always about the time that you've mastered certain skills which allow you to enter the school. So what we see as the school is not really the school. It's the winnowing rod or the preparatory or the place where people go to be sorted out, like our universities our universities. Our universities are not secret societies. But you get a PhD in physics, and boy, you've entered the secret. Because what do we know about physics, us lay people? What do we know about particle beams? What do we know about advanced nanotechnology? But those people that get PhDs in those subjects, they got some very specialized and secret information that We can't even understand it. I cannot understand it. I can try, and I guess if I devoted myself, I know I could get there, but I went a different direction. I had a chance to get a Ph.D., and as I've said many times, I walked away from it because I didn't like the feel of what those secret societies that were tapping me on the shoulder, I didn't like what they were offering me. I didn't want the Darwinist secrets because I was born into a family of faith. I'm just going to go back and say, my mother's family were gangsters. My father's family were teachers. And I'm an interesting mix of the two. But as you can tell from the Professor Penn podcast, um, well, one of my, my um, viewers and listeners always puts in the comments... The pen is mightier than the sword, and I consider that to be quite apt. But I've also said, and I got a short going around, that in my opinion, to be a man, you have to learn how to take care of business. And I'm sorry, women. I'm from a different generation. I just am. And um, where I trained, there was no women because you know what? They couldn't make it there. It wasn't that. We were discriminating against them. There was no effort to make room for them. You could either fight three people at one time or you couldn't. And they weren't little people. They were big guys. Like I remember one guy, professional football player. You know his name. I'm going to leave it out. When that guy hit you, your teeth rattled. And we hit, you know, there was full contact sometimes. You know, break noses, break bones, walk around with casts on as a sign of honor. And you go up and up and up this ladder, and what were they teaching me? And I'm you know I'm going to try to talk about these secret societies. I don't want the Professor Penn podcast to become a secret society. I want to reveal the training because we as American citizens have a disdain for secrets, as President Kennedy said in the last podcast, we, have a deep and abiding dislike of secret societies. What we need is the training that's in a secret society made available to every American citizen. Why should just a small group of people develop the coordination of mind, body, and spirit such that they have really supernormal powers and everybody else sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and smoke dope? What kind of scam is that? Do you think the guy that ended up at the top of the heap is different than the person that's laying on the couch right now watching this, smoking a joint? They really started out the same. But one of them, for whatever reason, either because of his familiar background, his cultural background, her skills academically, physically, for some reason, that man or woman got the tap on the shoulder and moved up in the secret society and got secret knowledge that made them healthier and stronger and using their human will, more able to create reality. And I'm speaking about this in a way that is nonpartisan. In other words, the same skill that heals, kills. It's the same training. It does not really matter what the secret society is you could be a, go through 33 degrees of masonry get to the top and say you know what piss off i don't believe in this and go and you have all the benefit of that spiritual training and you can devote yourself to christ it's not about right or wrong it's about the training now what makes it right or wrong is the decision you make when you get the skills i personally and they told me, don't ever talk about it, so I really don't, you know, it's just like George Bush and John Kerry. Some stuff you don't want to talk about because, it, in my case, it's not describable. But, you know, there's things that are very difficult to describe. Why you make a decision that you make, why you leave, because when you make that decision, you don't understand what that means 25 years down the road and that those two moments are actually the same moment because I have a different kind of view of time, and that's another secret society I was in. So to summarize, because we're running over, secret societies, people enter for reasons they don't understand. Sometimes it's to gain skills. Sometimes people get a tap on the shoulder. Sometimes it's to get women. Sometimes it's to get money. Whatever the reason, they start going up the ladder. When they get to the top, and they've mastered those skills, they have exceptional abilities to create realities. That's all it is. It's not a secret. What makes it a secret is that process of gaining those skills has been co-opted by politicians or people that have political ambitions that are seeking to bring about a reality that would be rejected by the majority of the people. So they make that training a secret to hide what their goals and aims truly are. But they've created an army of very skilled people who have exceptional abilities. And when you get up to that top, you have to make that decision. Do you want to be incorporated into the real school of mystery? And when you make that decision, you become a political operative for that school. That's not something I was willing to do. I'm just a guy. I get stains on my shirts and lose my temper and screw up terrible. I'm not trying to front myself as being some kind of special person. But they're out there, and uh, they have, some of them, very illegitimate aims. Some of them have very beautiful aims. Let us not believe that every secret society is evil. There's some very good ones, and there's some very good people that have been trained. So let's not discredit all training because we're faced with the goals and aims of evil people right now. There's some very good people out there, and we need them to oppose that evil. But I want to leave you with this our educational system is set up with the billions of dollars that it takes in and spends, it's set up to create population of passive law-abiding citizens who are disempowered. We don't have to have it that way. That's a social choice, and it's really the poverty. It's the racism of low expectations. It's the racism of low expectations. And I don't mean just racism against black people. It's against people. It's saying that people are stupid. It's saying that people are unworthy. It's saying that there's no God, and that people must be controlled through their educational process, through entertainment, through drugs, through disease. I have a very different view, and I hope you do too. I would like to see our borders restored. I would like to see prosperity for the American people. I'd like to see us be at peace so we have well-being, and then take that well-being and create an educational system where we educate our youth into a progressive ladder of training that allows them to become well, just well, well-being. That's what our Constitution and our founding documents are intended to give to us. If you read those documents from the perspective of what are we supposed to get out of this deal, and we understand that it's our own personal well-being, that we can pursue life and liberty and our happiness in any way that we can, that we deem appropriate, when we recognize how magical and the majesty of that idea, well, maybe we'll keep it together here and restore our republic. And on that note, I'm going to tell you again, Thursday night, we're going to go over the caucus result. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for all of the comments in the live chat and in the comments. Please spread the content out. Please get involved. I want to thank you so much for joining. Stay warm, and I wish you well.